Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Welcome to episode 45 of the Observer's Notebook podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program in the ALPO. I want to thank you for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication known as the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as Australian Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as a dollar a month. If you feel even more generous, $5 a month you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast and also a year's membership in the ALPO. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more by visiting us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. ALP, just search for ALPO Astronomy, or if you want to find the Facebook page of the podcast, just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode of the podcast. And now, the Observer's Notebook. Alright, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook Podcast. Today we have a third-time visitor to the podcast from the uh, ALPO Comet section, Carl Hergenrother. Welcome back, Carl. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, it's good to have you. Um, why don't you, in case people haven't heard the previous conversations we've had, just give everybody a little uh, background about yourself. Okay, so I'm down here in Tucson, Arizona. I'm the coordinator for the ALPO Comet section. I'm also involved with a few other amateur professional type organizations like the International Meteor Organization and the American Meteor Society. I am a professional astronomer. Um, I'm at the University of Arizona Lunar and Planetary Lab. I got my start really observing comets. I mean, I observed comets even before I came to the university as an amateur and I continue to observe as an amateur. But I really got into like my professional career started with comets and eventually led to being one of the co-founders of the Catalina Sky Survey, which has gone on to be pretty much the either number one or number two um, near-Earth asteroid discovery survey that NASA has. In the past couple years, and actually it's been about 14 years now, which is kind of amazing, <laughs> I've been involved with the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is a NASA-funded near-Earth asteroid sample return mission. Uh, we launched back in 2016 and we are very rapidly approaching our target asteroid, with this, which is near-Earth asteroid Bennu, which is a, a carbonaceous asteroid. And the reason why we're going there is to collect the sample. And the reason why we're going to that particular asteroid is because the current understanding of carbonaceous asteroids is that these have not changed much over the history of the solar system. 
So we're really hoping to bring back material that is, if not pristine, is about as close to as what we would expect the material to have been when the solar system formed, you know, four and a half billion years ago. That's fantastic. Sample return. I love that. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, it's looking forward to it. I mean, like I said, every day we're getting closer, and we expect our first images of the asteroid uh, sometime mid-August. And in September, we do our first science, which is really more of a hazards thing. We're going to look and see if this object actually acts a little bit like a comet. Is there any dust in the vicinity? And by October, we're looking for satellites and doing light curves and phase function analysis. And pretty much into November is when we start actually resolving the asteroid, getting our first shape models. And you can kind of say we've arrived by about December. Okay. Well, we have to get together when you have time in the middle of all that excitement and sit down and have a podcast on the mission because I think it'd be really interesting. Definitely. Okay. Well, we're we're not t- talking about Osiris Rex today. We're going to talk about uh, the comets that are coming through the summer and hopefully later on this year. Yeah. Tell us tell us what we have. Okay. So um, you know, we did a podcast about six months ago where we talked in general about the comets of 2018. And if you listen to that podcast, um, you may remember that the first half of 2018 was a little boring when it came to bright comets, you know, comets that the average person can observe from their backyard with their average size, you know, C8 or binoculars, stuff like that. We had one comet, uh, Comet Hines, uh, 2017 T1 Hines, which did get up to about 8th, ninth magnitude in January. Um, there was some question as to whether or not this comet would survive its pass through perihelion. Turned out it did, but it actually um, came out a little beat up, worse for wear. In fact, instead of being, you know, 8th, ninth magnitude after perihelion, it quickly faded to 16th. So whether that means this comet partially disintegrated or just ran out of its really volatile ices, um, we don't know yet. But um, the comet at least survived perihelion, but it wasn't in very good shape. So looking forward to the latter half of 2018, we actually have a whole bunch of comets that look very interesting, and a couple of which will be reasonably bright. Um, one may even be naked eye brightness. Oh, fantastic. And at least one or two others should be easy binocular objects. Okay. So kind of going to kick through the list here, kind of going a little more in a time order. So the first comet, which is actually observable right now, it's about ninth magnitude, was one I did not talk about during the... Uh, the Comets of 2018 podcast. Okay, just, I, I want to interject here. That was episode 33 for those listeners that want to go back and listen to it as well. Yep. So this comet wasn't expected to get brighter than 10th magnitude. Um, like most comets nowadays, it was discovered by Panstars, which mm-hmm. is the uh, one of the, the other, in addition to Catalina Sky Survey, the other big NASA-funded near-Earth asteroid survey. Right. And they do a really good job at discovering comets. And they're usually discovering comets years before they get to perihelion when they're out you know by the orbit of jupiter saturn even further out so when these comets get discovered it's you know it's a little bit of uh hand waving when you try to predict how bright they're going to be you know a couple years down the road but it turned out this particular comet c2016 m1 panstars is a dynamically old comet um, just to kind of digress here, you're going to hear me talk about dynamically old and dynamically new comets. Now, all, all comets are old. Mm-hmm. They, they all formed out of material that condensed out of the, the pre-solar solar nebula in the first 10 million years or so of the, the formation of the solar system. But what we mean by dynamically old and new is that these long, for these long-period comets, 
they've spent the last four and a half billion years way out in the Oort cloud. So you're talking a good fraction of the distance to the next star. Wow. Quarter, half a light year away from the sun. Our dynamically new comet is a comet that we believe, just based on running its orbit and doing simulations, is making its first pass through the inner solar system. So really, for the first time in about four and a half billion years, this comet is getting warm, and it's got ice that are starting to boil off. That's dynamically new. Okay, and those those are usually end up being brighter comets? Actually, they end up because they still have really volatile ices, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, stuff like that, methane, ammonia. They appear to be really bright when they're really far from the sun. Mm -hmm at the 5, 10, 15, 20 AU. And as a result, they get discovered when they're very far out. And then people, you know, what you usually do is you extrapolate an average brightening trend and you go, holy cow, this comet's going to be super bright when it's at perihelion. If we had as many comets of the century as I've heard we're going to have comets of the century in my lifetime, that would have been amazing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So good examples of dynamically new comets which have really kind of fooled us into thinking they were going to be great comets. Of course, the big one, Kahootek. Right. Um, for the, anyone who's really old may remember Cunningham from, mm-hmm. I think, 1941. That's another example. It's before me. Um, from kind of more of my era, you know, 80s kid, Austin, back 1989, 1990. Right. I remember seeing my sky and telescope with the thing, monster comet coming. <laughs> and, you know, it was a nice comet, got the fourth magnitude, but it was just a big fuzzball. Right. And then most recently, Ison which, again, was going to be a comet of the century, and it didn't even survive going around perihelion. In fact, I mean, that was a comet discovered, you know, out by the orbit of Saturn. And based on research that's been done on the debris trail of Ison, as it broke up passing the sun, at least at the end there, the nucleus was on the order of 50 meters in diameter. That is a small ice. Yeah. Tiny, tiny. Tiny, tiny. So the other objects are dynamically old, and that's what this comet Panstars is, this uh, 2016 M1. And dynamically old means it's at least passed close to the sun once before. Okay. Maybe twice, maybe three times, whatever. And as a result, a lot of times these comets are faint when they're far out because they've already boiled off the really volatile ices, the stuff that melts at very low temperatures. And like I said, it's like the ammonia, methane, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide. And so they really don't get active until they get within a couple AU and you know, water starts sublimating and, you, and starts driving the activity. So quite often these comets, when they're discovered really far out, uh, may look faint, but then they brighten faster than kind of the average trends. And as a result, they kind of they end up being nice surprises. So a lot of the recent Lovejoy comets were in this, you know, they were discovered and they got up to like third, fourth magnitude. Mm-hmm. And so Pansars is one of these objects that has brightened quite well. And right now it's sitting in Sagittarius, moving south. It's about ninth magnitude. It will brighten up to about eighth magnitude in uh, June, July. Unfortunately, the moving south part means for us in the northern hemisphere here, we'll probably lose track of it by the end of June, early July. But then the southern hemisphere will be able to follow it through the rest of the summer. And what do the magnitude projections look like for, let's say, uh, early June? So right now, I mean, it's looking like it'll probably get up to eight. Okay. And um, I, I saw it last night. Um, it was about magnitude nine and a half is what I put it at. Okay. So 
you know, it's a fairly decent uh, long period comet. It does not get very close to the sun. Uh, perihelion is in August, and it's only at 2.2 AU. Oh, okay. It's kind of a nice surprise. Uh, the next comet I want to talk about is another one that I actually did not mention in the uh, Comets of 2018 podcast. And this one actually will not get very bright, but I'm just mentioning it because I've kind of been pointing more of our CCD observers at this one because it represents a class of objects that there's been a lot more interest in within the comet community and that even I've been getting more interested in even on my professional side. And this particular comet is a 364P Panstars. And this is its second time, its, uh, its second apparition since it was discovered in 2013. And what's interesting about this object is that it kind of, it's part of a class of objects that have only really been discovered in the past, I don't know, a couple dec a decade or so here. And these are comets that really aren't active at all until they get down to about 1 AU from the sun. And then all of a sudden they turn on and they get up to 10th magnitude. And then a month or two later, they turn back off again. And so it's kind of cool because it provides for CCD observers the opportunity to observe a bare nucleus at a reasonably bright magnitude, 15th, 16th, 17th magnitude. Not visual magnitudes, but, I mean, not good enough for visual observing, but easy for CCD observers. Now, these comets still have a coma? And they, they have a coma and a tail. Sometimes they only have a tail, and they don't really have a coma. Oh, really? So it's just a and, point It's a point with a tail behind it. Right. And oh, they can get And they can get fairly active, and then they turn off again, and then you can follow the nucleus back out again. And one reason why people are really interested in these objects um, is because... When you start doing the dynamical simulations, they suggest that a lot of these objects don't come from the Kuiper Belt. These objects actually come from the asteroid main belt. It's and a short so, period comet, so that would, yeah. Right, but it actually makes it look more like these are carbonaceous asteroids that are just volatile rich and have lots of ices that have been kicked into the near-Earth asteroid population. And then when they get really close to the sun within one AU and they get really hot, they behave like comets. And so, yeah, I mean, what's an asteroid and what's a comet? There's a big continuum. Mm -hmm. and there's no real dividing line anymore. But it suggests that these are objects that, unlike the comets that formed, you know, four and a half billion years ago and got kicked out into the Kuiper Belt, into the Oort Cloud, kind of into deep freeze, these objects formed at the same time maybe a little closer to the sun, maybe at the same distance, but for whatever reason, when Jupiter and Saturn and you know, things kind of went haywire. These objects got trapped closer to the sun rather than further from the sun. And as they got kicked in, now that they've been kicked in closer, they've acted like real comets, even though they really have spent probably most of the last four and a half billion years in the asteroid belt. Fascinating. Yeah, so this particular object, 364P Panstars, um, right now, I mean, the CCD observers have been picking it up about 14th, 15th magnitude, a little bit of a coma, a nice long tail. When it's at perihelion, it's more of a southern hemisphere object, but they'll okay. be able to see it at 10th magnitude. And then within a month of perihelion, it'll turn off, and you'll just have a nucleus with this kind of ghost tail of material streaming behind it. Well, we do have listeners down under, so I'm sure they will be giving it a look. Yep, yep. And the thing to look forward to is the next time this comet comes around, which is in 2023, it passes within about 0.12 AU of the Earth, when it's inbound and well-placed for Northern Hemisphere observers. So oh, we'll have wow. a good shot of it then. So going back to uh, a little further down the road and kind of more, you know, your normal comets here. 
Um, we do have a comet that's coming in, a C2017 T3 Atlas, <coughs> uh, discovered by the Atlas Survey, which, uh, like Pan Stars, is based in Hawaii. It's a slightly different group. Um, Atlas has actually got a half-meter F2 telescope, and their goal is actually to discover inbound asteroids before they hit the Earth, asteroids that might be discovered a few weeks out. So they're kind of looking for, you know, the Chelyabinsk-type impact. Like, for, like the Near-Earth Asteroid Program. Yeah, for the Near-Earth Asteroid Program. They've done a great job discovering supernova, and they do discover some comets. And uh, so this 2017 T3 Atlas, like the previous Panstars object, is a dynamically old comet. <coughs> so it actually has been brightening a little quicker than we expected. Hmm. Uh, right now, it's actually too close to the sun to be seen. So we don't quite know what it's doing now, but just kind of extrapolating its brightness behavior from before. It should be an eighth magnitude object in July. Though unfortunately, this is not one that we're going to see from the Northern Hemisphere. This is going to be solely a Southern Hemisphere object, um, just because it's located south of the sun. <clears throat> the, the 88 degree inclinations kind of hurts one hemisphere or the other, usually. The next comet on our list was one that you know, some people were predicting would be the brightest comet of the year. This was a C2017 S3 Panstars. Mm -hmm. And there was some prediction that it would get up the second, third, fourth magnitude at perihelion. Now, mind you, perihelion's only at 0.2 AU, so you wouldn't have a good shot of observing it at perihelion. It would be way too close to awesome the sun. Close, right. Yeah. But the hope was that it would at least be maybe sixth, seventh magnitude inbound before we would lose it before it would be too close to the sun to be seen. But this comet turned out to be dynamically new. And in fact, it hasn't brightened much at all. And intrinsically, if you, if you take out the fact that it's getting closer to the sun, and it's, so it's getting warmer, it's getting close to the Earth, so it's getting brighter, if you kind of correct for those trends, it's actually been getting intrinsically fainter. So its activity level has actually been dropping, which is common for these dynamically new comets until they get a little closer and then their activity picks up again. Yeah, you said they kick it around 1 AU? That's... Yeah, and these may be a little further out okay. because these are the ones that actually do come out of the Oort cloud. Okay. So kind of like what ISON did, where it was discovered really bright, and intrinsically it didn't brighten for a year or two. And then in the last few months it started brightening again. So this particular comet has not been brightening much, and the prediction of you know third, fourth magnitude at perihelion is looking more like it might only be 8th, 7th, 8th, ninth magnitude. And when is perihelion? Perihelion is in the middle of August, August 15th of this year. And being so faint now, you do have to question again, kind of similar to Comet Hines that I discussed earlier in the podcast here, whether or not this one will even survive perihelion. Yeah, because it is close. Yes, it is close. It's getting very close to the sun. It looks like it is a pretty small nucleus. Um, luckily for us, if it does survive perihelion a week or so later, it will be in the uh, <coughs> the SOHO chronograph field of view. Oh, okay. That'd be good. So we might be able to watch it as it goes through there. Or we might be able to say, hey, it's gone. Yeah. It went around, didn't come back. <laughs> it didn't, yeah. Or like ISON, it's just a cloud yeah. dispersing off into space. Okay. But this particular object is. We can watch it come inbound, and CCD observers are watching it now. And we can probably follow it to about mid-July. When I mean we, I mean up us here in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. Um, hopefully it gets up to 10th magnitude by then, but it's not looking like that's going to be the case. And then it won't be till well after perihelion. We're probably talking October-ish 
that will catch it again and by then it'll be pretty far from the sun and I suspect it'll be way if it even exists it'll be way too faint for visual yeah. observers not going to survive there it's a one shot deal yeah it's a one shot deal so the next comets on the list are actually all periodic comets and by periodic we mean you know short period Jupiter family actually some of them are even longer than Jupiter family comets one's a Halley type comet but these are all comets that you know return every five to thirty or so years and the first one on our list is 21P Jacobini Zinner uh, I've seen this one yeah this is a pretty good one and in fact uh, again anyone who was observing back in the, the 80s during the Halley days may remember Jacobini Zinner was located close to Halley in the fall there and was pretty bright. I actually had a pretty good return back in the you know September, October, November 1985. People may also recognize the name Jacobini Zinner because it is the parent body of a meteor stream, the Jacobinids, sometimes known as the Draconids, which created some major meteor storms back in, uh, I think it was 1946, 1933. Hmm. So this year, turns out will be one of its better returns. It'll actually be its closest approach to Earth since 1959. And it'll approach down to about no, 0.39 AU. It gets down to 0.39 AU of the Earth. So that's about as, that's a pretty good return for Jacobini's inner. And so it'll start July about the 11th magnitude. And it should steadily brighten throughout the summer, reaching 10 by mid-July, 9 by late July, 8 by mid-August. And by the beginning of September, it'll peak out at around magnitude 7. Okay. Easy binocular object. Should be an easy binocular object. Um, it starts off pretty high, you know, in Cygnus, uh, Cepheus, Cassiopeia, Campylopartalus, Perseus in July and August. And then in September, as it gets, you know, basically gets at its brightest, it starts moving south to Auriga, Gemini, Montessero, so... It starts off as pretty much solely a northern hemisphere object, and then maybe a little past its brightest, it becomes visible from both hemispheres. Okay, good. And towards uh, October, November, while it's fading, it becomes more of a southern hemisphere object. Yeah, and looking forward, this is also the best return for Jacobini Zinner until 2078. So this is, you know, if you want to see this particular comet, now's Just, the time to do it. This is the time. Yeah. And another little historical tidbit, this actually was the first comet visited by a spacecraft. Ah. Remember, we had this flotilla, this armada of spacecraft that were <clears throat> built and launched by the Russians, the European Space Agency, the Japanese, that went to Halley. The United States was supposed to have its own mission, and they got canceled due to budget pressure and stuff like that. But thanks to a few really um, awesome space dynamicists, who came up with the idea of taking the IC3 satellite. Oh, yeah. I do remember this, yeah. Yeah, the magnetospheric satellite, the International Sun-Earth Explorer 3 satellite, and after a few really close approaches to the moon, they actually fl renamed it ICE, kept the same basic pronunciation, turned it into the ICE, I-C-E, International Cometary Explorer, and it flew past Jacobini's inner, and even went through the tail of Halley as well. Unfortunately, it didn't have any cameras, so that's why you rarely see, you know, people don't really remember it much, but mm -hmm. it was actually the first to go through there. So moving down the list of objects here, the next object on our list is another short-period comet. This is 64P swift Gerals. This is a comet that returns roughly about every nine years, gets about 1.4 AU from the sun. <clears throat> Again... Some of the more old-school observers may remember observing this comet at its last really good return, which was in 1981, 
when it reached ninth magnitude. In fact, I have a, you know entire folders of observations of this comet that were sent into the Alpo comet section back then. This time around, it will also get up to about ninth magnitude, though we're talking more around the time of its perihelion, which was early November. And so we're talking the November, December timeframe. It'll be definitely observable from the Northern Hemisphere. And in fact, it'll be almost overhead if you observe it at the, looks like in the morning sky. And so this comet um, actually has a pretty long history. It was discovered in 1889 by Lewis Swift. And you may recognize Swift as the discoverer also of Swift-Tuttle, Perseid mm-hmm. uh, parent body that came around back in 1992. Um, it was then lost for almost 100 years until it was rediscovered photographically by Tom Garrels in 1972. And Tom Garrels, of course, went on to discover, actually had discovered many more comets and was the founder of Space Watch, which was really the first near-Earth asteroid comet survey to use CCDs rather than just film. The next object is 38P Stefan Otterma, which is a Halley family comet. It comes around about every 38 years. And so this comet was discovered back in 1867. Um, it's kind of an interesting story. I mean, it's called uh, Stefan but he didn't actually discover the comet. <coughs> it was discovered by a, another individual, uh, Kogia, and I could be butchering the pronunciation on that, who would go on to discover many more comets, but Stefan was his boss. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and whether he stole the credit or whether it just kind of lost in translation, uh. because Stefan was the one who... <coughs> what happened was Kogia was looking around, found the comet, didn't recognize it as a comet, said, oh, there's a nebula here that isn't charted. In 1867, you could come across a 10th magnitude galaxy that hadn't been charted yet. Right. You know? And then, of course, it got cloudy, as usual. And then a few days later, Stefan's like, well, I'll go check on Kogia's nebula, and hey, it's not there. I'll go hunt around. Maybe it's a comet. And a couple, you know, a degree or so later, hey, here it is. And then he made the announcement. And either they just named it after Stefan because, well, he made the announcement and they just assumed it was his discovery. Or it wouldn't be the first time a boss stole a discovery from <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, Not so much anymore, but no. they, that happened throughout the history of astronomy. And That's interesting. Discovered. So, yeah, that was back in 1867. And uh, it was missed its next return, 1904, but it was picked up uh, photographically in 1942 in Finland by Otterma, and hence the name Stefan Otterma. Okay. Um, this is a comet that will also get up to about ninth magnitude. Um, perihelion distance is only about 1.6 AU, so it doesn't get incredibly close. Um, last time this one was seen was also about 1980, when it got up to eighth ninth magnitude, so people may remember it from that time as well. And so it'll be a morning object this year. It starts off pretty faint, this summer, but it'll quickly brighten to about 11th magnitude by the end of September, and ultimately peak late November time frame at about magnitude 9. Is it currently visible? It is. It has been observed. Okay. It was observed, okay. uh, I believe, by Pan Stars, but right now it's probably about 17th, 18th magnitude. Okay. Like a lot of these Halley-type objects, except for really for Halley itself, um, they're usually gas, very gassy, gas-rich. And so they're pretty faint, and then once they get to about 2 AU, boom, they really turn on, All right. expand, and, and grow, and produce a nice big coma. 
on the list. And barring, you know, discovery of a nice, bright surprise comet, this last comet should also be the brightest comet of the year. And this is 46P Wurtenen. This is the one I've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah. So Wurtenen was discovered back in 1947 by Carl Wurtenen, who was observing at the Lick Observatory. He was doing a stellar proper motion study looking for close stars. I don't think this, I think he had actually discovered a few other comets as well, but this is his only periodic comet. Uh, this will turn out to be its 12th observed return. Um, Wurtenen has actually been pretty well studied for what turns out to be a relatively small comet. I mean, it's only got a nucleus of 1.2 kilometers because originally it was the target of the Rosetta mission. Rather than going to 67P Sheremov Jereshchenko, Rosetta was supposed to go to Wurtenen, but then because the launch got delayed, they had to change targets. Ah. And they ended up going to 67P, the, uh, the rubber ducky. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So Wurtenen is actually going to come pretty close to the Earth, about 0.07 AU on December 16th. And this is by far the closest known approach for this particular comet. And based on how it's behaved in the last few apparitions, it could get as bright as third magnitude in the middle of December. Nice. Christmas comet. Yeah, Christmas comet. Now, there is a little bit of a disclaimer here, for, especially for people who are kind of new to observing comets. Um, when I say it's a third magnitude comet, that doesn't mean it's going to appear to be as bright as, say, a third magnitude star. Um, you know, stars are a nice little point source. All the light is in one little area. Comet, especially a comet that's coming really close to the Earth, that light is spread over a much larger area. And it wouldn't surprise me if this comet, the coma of Wurtenin, isn't at least the size of the moon, if not larger. Oh my goodness, really? So you're talking third magnitude spread over, say, the size of, a good example would be like the Beehive Nebula. Wow. You know, in Cancer. So even if you can see third magnitude from your backyard or your favorite It's going to look like a cloud in the sky. You may not even see it because yeah. it'll be too faint. Yeah. Um, unless you have skies that are really, say, you can see stars down to maybe about fifth magnitude you might have a better chance of seeing this comet. It actually starts off pretty far to the south. So, you know, as it starts brightening, at least, you know, by, the, by about mid-October, it'll be bright enough for binoculars. And by the end of October, it'll be easy for a small telescope and binoculars. But it's still a declination of, like, negative 33 degrees. So if you're, you know, 40 degrees further north, you're probably not going to have a pretty clear shot of it. But it very rapidly starts moving north. Okay. And in fact, by Thanksgiving time, even those of you living kind of in the northern tier, United States, southern tier, Canada, and Europe, should be able to pick it up pretty easily. And by the time it actually goes through opposition, it is pretty much at the celestial equator. And then well into the end of the year, when it still should be a third, fourth magnitude object, it'll be up at plus 53 and almost getting circumpolar. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Another great thing about this comet is that it's, you know, we, we've had this real nice string of short period comets coming very close to the Earth over the last couple of years. Um, some of them didn't get very bright, um, like 209P, which was supposed to have this monster meteor shower that ended up not really happening, at least for visual observers. Um, there was a comet, uh, I think it's 2016 PA something, 14, that also got pretty bright. Uh, there was 252P, which was not supposed to get bright, and then for whatever reason, it was abnormally active, got up to 4th, 5th magnitude. 
And then earlier in uh, the previous year, 2017, we had Honda Burkhaj Padrasakova, as well as Tuttle Jacobini Krasik, which also passed really close to the Earth and got fairly bright. And for anyone who tried observing those comets, you probably one thing you probably did notice is that, yeah, the prediction was sixth, seventh magnitude, but boy, they were really hard to see. And that's because they were really close and really spread out. But for these objects coming so close, it also has given professional astronomers a really uh, a nice way to, you know, it made it easy to observe the nucleus, right? observe jets. And there actually is a campaign called the Four Star P Coma Morphology Campaign, which is asking for CCD observers. Though I could see even if you're sketching and you can see jets, if you, you know, you sketch them properly, okay. you know, attention to details. They're collecting all these observations because they're able to use these observations to, even though you're not directly seeing the nucleus, by seeing the jets and the fans and the various near-nucleus coma structure, you can figure out stuff like how rapidly the nucleus is rotating, um, what direction the pole is pointed in, whether or not the pole is precessing or changing, whether or not the rotation period is changing. Um, the one, comment I just mentioned before, titled Jacobini Krasik, over the course of its return in 2017, astronomers saw its rotation period change by a factor of two. Oh. Which is amazing. Which also may explain why these comets split so often. Because they can be spun up to a speed where literally the comet just falls apart. Yeah, I never thought of their rotation changing as they went around the sun, but wow. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of these comets are talking about something that's you know maybe a kilometer or two across, right. and those jets can be pretty powerful. That's true. That's, that's true. Important. Yeah. Interesting. So who's sponsoring that study? So it's really there's two groups. There's uh, the Planetary Science Institute, which is located here in Tucson, and also the University of Maryland. Okay. And so they've been really doing that. So if you just look for you know just kind of Google four star P coma morphology campaign. And I've also got a link on some of my uh, comet section uh, monthly reports that I put out in okay. summaries. Okay. I'll find that link and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually HTTPS www.psi.edu slash 41P, 45P, 46P. <coughs> and that's why it's called the 4-star P, because <laughs> 41P was Tuttle Jacobini Krasik, 45P was Honda Murkosh Tajasakova. 46P, of course, is Wurtman. All right. That, sound, that sounds exciting. That looks like a program to get into. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> of course, if you're collecting data, send it to me yep. at the, the comment section, and I will also forward on any images that look like they could really benefit that campaign as well. Okay. And speaking of that, what are what's, how can everybody get a hold of you? If they have questions or observations they want to submit to the comment section. Right, so the best way to get a hold of me is through my ALPO, my ALPO uh, email address, which is carl.hergenrother at alpo-astronomy.org. And I'll actually spell my name since it's, you know. So it's C-A-R-L, period, H-E-R-G-E-N-R-O-T-H-E-R at alpo-astronomy dot O-R-G. Perfect. And also, you can, of course, go to the ALPO website, which is alpo-astronomy.org, and you'll see a link to the comment section and other ways to contact me there. Fantastic. Well, Carl, if you got anything else you want to add before we close this out? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's other comets out there. Um, you know, I just went over to comets that got brighter than about 10th magnitude. Um, if you've got a C8 in your backyard with a CCD camera or a DSLR, there's probably 30 other comets you can be observing. So at the comet section, we're interested in all sorts of comet observations, uh, not only of current comets, but even past observations. And, you know, the things could be as simple as just a description of what you saw through the eyepiece. It could be a sketch of what you saw, an image, a photograph, magnitude estimate, um, even spectroscopy, because I know a lot of amateurs now are starting to get more into the spectroscopy game as well. And, of course, comets are very interesting when you look at them spectroscopically. That sounds good. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on again, and hopefully we can get together and talk about OSIRIS-REx in the near future. Sounds good. All right, Carl, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know me. I'm excited to observe these comets later this year. And I want to thank uh, Carl for coming on again to the Observer's Notebook podcast. We upload a new episode of the podcast every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and also Amazon Echo. If you can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. The link is in the show notes. And saying that, I want to thank one of our uh, Patreon supporters and producer of the podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. You can find the you can join the ALPO. Membership begins at only fourteen dollars a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org, and we're also on the Facebook. And until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thank you for listening. <laughs>